I often find that my most productive thinking occurs when I'm engaged in conversation with a friend. This might be partly because I have the advantage of ideas that aren't mine influencing my own thoughts. But even if I am doing most of the talking, I find that in translating my ideas into language, I am going through a reasoning process that is difficult to do isolated in the mind. So if I am working to lay out for my own benefit a set of ideas into a coherent picture, I find that I talk to myself, literally. To an outside witness, I probably look like an insane person, gesturing emphatically as if the person I'm trying to explain the thing to is standing in front of me. But the words and the associated gestures help me to make progress toward getting my thoughts clear, even to me. When we are engaged in dialogue, we speak so quickly and extemporaneously that it can seem like we are just another listener, learning our own thoughts on a topic just as the other person is doing so. In The Principles of Psychology, William James wrote, quote, Consciousness does not appear to itself chopped up in bits. Such words as chain or train do not describe it fitly as it presents itself in the first instance. It is nothing jointed. It flows. A river or a stream are the metaphors by which it is most naturally described. In talking of it hereafter, let us call it the stream of thought, of consciousness, or of subjective life." Unquote. Stream of consciousness, as used by James, refers to the general fact of continuity of subjective experience over time. I laid out what I believe to be the characteristic features of consciousness in the second episode of the podcast. In brief, I said that human consciousness is a unified composition of contents. The contents are specific and meaningful, and they exist from a point of view. Human consciousness is continuous in time. It is limited and coherent. So the stream of consciousness named by William James refers to the fourth characteristic in my list, that human consciousness is continuous in time. Recall the working definition of consciousness provided by John Searle that is commonly used as a rough-and-ready description of the phenomenon by consciousness scientists. Searle said, quote, Consciousness refers to those states of sentience and awareness that typically begin when we awake from a dreamless sleep and continue until we go to sleep again or fall into a coma or die or otherwise become unconscious, unquote. So Searle, too, incorporates the idea of continuity and time into his description. It appears to me that most existing theories, including, for example, the global neuronal workspace theory, seeking to explain consciousness, are consistent with this observation. My framework, the Temporally Integrated Causality Landscape, TICL, rests strongly on this idea, too. In fact, my theory was highly influenced by integrated information theory, but differs substantially because I insist on accounting for the sense of temporal continuity. In integrated information theory, the exclusion principle says that conscious experiences have definite borders and a particular spatial and temporal grain. According to the TICL, conscious contents each have a particular spatial and temporal grain. Since they each emerge into and subsequently exit from the conscious composition according to their own dynamics, but since consciousness is a composition of many contents, the experience as a whole does not have a clear beginning or ending. Rather, as James pointed out, conscious experience flows continually. In this episode, I will endeavor to explore a specific kind of stream within consciousness that I haven't discussed previously. 
this is what we commonly refer to as a train of thought. Perhaps rather than a kind of stream, the train of thought could be analogous to a current within the stream of consciousness. The current moves from thought to thought, but not exactly as a train with its individual cars coming one after another in series. There are at least transitional thoughts that connect them explicitly or implicitly. Thinking feels a bit like engineering a train in that at any given thought there seems to be the threads of associated ideas available to select among. So if it is a train that is being directed, it must be running along a track with many switches to choose from. But like a train charging constantly forward, the will is largely limited to changing course along a couple of available tracks. Then, from the new position steaming forward, one or perhaps a few new switches present themselves, and on and on. In episode 9 on self-identity, I reference Sam Harris's book, Waking Up. That book explores consciousness as experienced directly during meditation. Taking a phenomenological angle, Harris writes, quote, The deeper purpose of meditation is to recognize that which is common to all states of experience, both pleasant and unpleasant. The goal is to realize those qualities that are intrinsic to consciousness in every present moment, no matter what arises to be noticed. When you are able to rest naturally, merely witnessing the totality of experience, and thoughts themselves are left to arise and vanish as they will, you can recognize that consciousness is intrinsically undivided." Unquote. So in Harris's estimation, thoughts are ultimately no different than any other content that arises in consciousness. But it seems to me that this is most true within the meditating context, because by focusing the attention on the breath, we seem to be exhausting a voluntary willful aspect of our mind, the thinking aspects to the degree that we can. Having diminished this thinking, we can witness the contents that arise on their own, untampered with. We can thereby suggest that thinking and thoughts are not the same thing. Thoughts are contents in consciousness of a certain kind. Thinking is the process of altering those contents. So thinking changes thoughts or prompts new thoughts to arise. If we are in a normal state of mind, not attending maximally to some individual feature of experience as we do in mindfulness meditation, we seem to have an active role, at least in part, upon the production of thoughts. After all, this is what meditation achieves, the quieting of the active role in thought production. In the analogy of the train of thought I discussed before, the meditative state has the engineer focused entirely on doing some repetitive act, maybe shoveling coal into the engine, as a result, the train keeps going down the track, but without being interfered with by, by the engineer's decisions of when to switch from one track to another. Thinking seems analogous to me to the production of language. Of necessity, when we produce meaningful vocalizations, we are limited by a vocal apparatus, at least to the production of a single word or phrase at one time. But notice that this is true also of verbal thinking, which isn't being vocalized at all. If I talk to myself, in my head as it were, I proceed along a single linear production of linguistic thoughts. I am unable to simultaneously carry out more than one internal train of thought. And this is true even if my thoughts are not of a verbal type. If I'm just manipulating a three-dimensional object in my mind, I cannot picture the object rotating in one direction and also in the opposite direction simultaneously. Or suppose I am imagining walking around my house from the front yard to the back. This, too, is accomplished in my mind in a single linear way. 
What is interesting about this limitation is that it seems to accord perfectly with behavior in the world. Each muscle group can only do a single thing at a time. If I am walking, I cannot also be running or kicking or anything else. Even the positioning of the eyes can only direct the fovea to one location at a time. So a linear narrative of actions with the body is necessary to operate in the world. So we walk, talk, and think in a limited single track in the forward direction in time. We can walk and talk, or walk and think in parallel, because these two contemporaneous behaviors act along separate output streams. We are not totally limited to a single train of thought. There could be some leeway such that you could be doing one thing mostly, but also keeping part of your mind on something else. But clearly this process of cognitive load is highly limited. There was a classic study by Dan Simons and Christopher Chabri in which viewers were asked to watch a short film showing two teams, one in white, the other in black, tossing a basketball. The viewers were told to count the number of passes made by the white team. In the middle of the film, a man in a gorilla suit enters, beats his chest a few times, and then leaves. In this task, the majority of subjects never saw the gorilla. Cognitive studies like this one reveal the limitation of attention. In the previous episode, I forwarded the hypothesis that the voluntary direction of attention and thought occurs analogously to voluntary motor outputs. I said that the key difference between voluntary motor output from the cortex and voluntary cognitive functional outputs from the cortex is that the former target muscle cells in the periphery, while the latter target neuronal elements within the thalamocortical system itself. I said that voluntary attention and intentional thought processes feed into the integrated system where they cause changes in local firing activities and thereby give rise to or alter subsystems that are experienced as conscious contents. In an inquiry concerning human understanding, David Hume distinguishes between impressions and ideas. He writes, quote, Here thereafter we may divide all the perceptions of the mind into two classes or species, which are distinguished by their different degrees of force and vivacity. The less forcible and lively are commonly denominated thoughts or ideas. The other species want a name in our language, and in most others. I suppose because it was not requisite for any but philosophical purposes to rank them under a general term or appellation. Let us therefore use a little freedom and call them impressions, employing that word in a sense somewhat different than the usual. By the term impression, then, I mean all our more lively perceptions when we hear or see or feel or love or hate or desire or will, and impressions are distinguished from ideas which are the less lively perceptions of which we are conscious when we reflect on any of those sensations or movements above mentioned." Unquote. When I have discussed the different kinds of qualia in the podcast, I have referred to perceptual contents and conceptual contents. These map well with Hume's impressions and ideas, respectively. So in my thinking, perceived contents are more direct and vivid, like a color or a shape seen or a tone heard. Conceptual contents are abstract rather than direct. Hume writes, quote, It is evident that there is a principle of connection between the different thoughts or ideas of the mind, and that in their appearance to the memory or imagination, they introduce each other with a certain degree of method and regularity. In our more serious thinking or discourse, this is so observable that any particular thought with, which breaks in upon the regular tract or chain of ideas is immediately remarked and rejected. And even in our wildest and most wandering reveries, nay, in our very dreams, we shall find, if we reflect, 
that the imagination ran not altogether at adventures, but that there was still a connection upheld among the different ideas which succeeded each other. Were the loosest and freest conversation to be transcribed, there would immediately be observed something which connected it in all its transitions, or where this is wanting, the person who broke the thread of discourse might still inform you that there had secretly revolved in his mind a succession of thought which had gradually led him from the subject of conversation." Unquote. Hume goes on to claim that there are only three principles of connection among ideas, resemblance, contiguity in time or place, and cause and effect. If we adopt Hume's description of an idea or a thought, it is essentially an abstract representation of something. Thinking proceeds over a period of consciousness from thought to thought in a continuous and connected way, just like a conversation. So a first thought might bring up a second thought by association in accordance with one of Hume's three principles of connection, resemblance, contiguity in time or place, or cause and effect. It occurs to me that a word which identifies something in the world could be understood as resembling in our mind the idea to which the word refers. Not literally, of course, but the label bird is directly connected to the idea bird and the actual animal in the world, bird. So if I am reading a story, the words that I read automatically conjure in my mind the thing that the words mean to me. Likewise, if I am writing, the ideas in my mind are automatically transferable into words. Sometimes I do not have the word for something to which I want to refer, either because I don't know it or because I can't access it for some reason. In the latter event, I carry out a kind of cognitive search for the right word. Attention has been likened to a searchlight in this way, though the exact mechanism is uncertain. Thinking seems to occur in a tight range of bottleneck. In accordance with my hypothesis, the limitation of thinking is given by the influence of output neurons that feed back, almost certainly indirectly, into the thalamocortical system. If we stick with the example of searching for the right word, the feedback that we are willfully directing activates a place in the network that it approximates to be the rep representation of the word. We experience the emergence of an idea in consciousness. Let's say I'm looking for the word introspection. I'm in the middle of speaking a sentence that calls for just that word. I suddenly pause and either aloud or within my mind engage in this search function, which utilizes clues to narrow the search. I might become conscious of the word inspection because it superficially resembles the word I'm after. Or I might become conscious of the word self-examination because it has a synonymous meaning, another kind of resemblance. I reflect on the newly conscious word, either having the sense that it is a good clue toward the word I want or rejecting it as going in the wrong direction. These new data, sounds like inspection, synonymous with self-examination, feedback again to determine a different location in the thalamocortical network to discover the idea that I'm actually seeking. If I am right, at least somewhat, about the analogy between motor output and cognitive output, we might expect what we observe here, that the train of thought is limited to a single goal-directed track at a time. This arrangement of thoughts into a single, limited series contrasts with the compositional nature of consciousness as a whole. A visual scene and the sounds that we are hearing and everything else occurring in a common moment of experience is rich with details. But without thinking about or attending to all of the particular details, we really have only a gist experience. With a single line of attention normally drawn to the most relevant few aspects of the experience at one time. If I'm walking along the sidewalk and talking on the phone, I soon become essentially unaware of the walking, of the pressure on my feet as I step, 
or the sound of the steps as I make them, so my attention being largely engaged in the phone conversation limits the scope of my perceptual reality, but the gist of the scene apparently always remains. What is the mechanism of this limitation? In the TICL, subsystems of neuronal elements within a large integrated system have a higher degree of temporally integrated causality than the system at large. From the point of view of the system, something specific is happening within it, conscious contents, but these contents occur only in accordance with those networks that produce above thresholds causality so that they can be distinguished from the rest of the noise. This suggests that those few subsystems which have the highest levels of temporally integrated causality will produce the most robust contents. If thinking enables the willful amplification of individually targeted networks to a powerful enough degree to reliably produce a subsystem with the highest level of temporally integrated causality anywhere in the system, then the limit on attention or thinking as a voluntary output function would be expected to limit the number of contents that could be examined in detail at any given time. Relatively speaking, the non-attended contents would be, of observ would be observable in the composition, but only as a gist. Some of my most interesting conversations occur with people I have never met, often dead people who have left their thoughts for me in the written word. As I read, my attention is almost, but not entirely, exhausted by the comprehension of the author's prose. Like a dialogue, the words I read convey their meanings, which bring up associations in the mind with other things that I know or have thought about or read before. If a thought is awoken by a passage that I have just read, that is provocative enough to steal my attention altogether, I might set the book down and consider where the thought goes. Often, though, these associations present me with the engineer's opportunity to switch tracks and carry out a sequence of thoughts that will take me somewhere other than what is written on the page. But out of habit, I will have kept on reading line by line without having taken in anything from the writer at all. I will then have to resolve what I was thinking, dismiss it, and go back to where I was, or where I was last conscious of being, Lost in thought is a relative phrase. Rather, it seems that the world before my eyes was, for a time, lost to me. Mm -hmm.